podcast is brought to you by Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome all you QT faithful to your monthly Himmler devotional, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the majestic soundtracks from the Tarantino-verse. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show, owner of Scareflare Records and co-host of the Splatterhouse Podcast, Mr. Sean Wheeler. Together, we will be giving a thorough examination of the tracks that reside on the first half of Tarantino's fourth film, his Kung Fu Samurai Western revenge flick, the Kill Bill Volume 1 soundtrack. Welcome back, Mr. Wheeler, and may Tarantino be with you always. Amen. Now, how are things going over at the Splatterhouse podcast and with Scareflare Records? As I know, something that's on this soundtrack is near and dear to your heart. Yeah, um, Splatterhouse, we're still chugging away month by month. We do only do one a month. We have enough problems trying to get everybody together to do that one. Um, we're covering <laughs> George Romero's Martin, I think is the next Ooh. one that we're doing. We just did Frank Darabont's The Mist, because I've never heard a podcast on The Mist, and I love the film, so... If anyone hasn't seen it, the movie's great. If you want to hear an hour and a half of two grown men bitching about it, check out our podcast. <laughs> I may or may know. I may or may not know all about two grown men bitching about stuff. And as far as scare floor goes, like records are starting to roll in. I've got four of them coming in like the next couple of weeks, including our biggest release, which is coming so far. And uh, we just dropped Night Riders here recently, the George Romero film, and that has sold extremely well. So. If you need a copy, go on over to scareflare.com, and I still have them in stock, along with The Grand Duel, Chainsaw Massacre, The Shocking Truth, Lady in White, The Furies. I got a whole bunch. So The Grand Duel, which may or may not be talked about on this episode in a little bit. Speaking of The Grand Duel, and more succinctly, Kill Bill Volume 1, your true feelings on this film of what I have called one of the two major touchstones for two separate generations, Gen X, which we are a part of, our touchstone, I feel, into the Tarantino universe was Pulp Fiction. And I feel that a lot of the millennial touchstone for this, and maybe even some down the road, but most like more succinctly millennials, is this movie, Kill Bill Volume 1, and then Kill Bill Volume 2 will come six months later. Your feelings on my statement of that and uh, this first half of the fourth film of Tarantino. I agree with um, your whole 
you know, doctorate, you know, that you've written about this. That... I will tell my wife that I will see if I can get some kind of You're doctorate good. from some film school. Maybe that's just give me a little doctorate ones. on Tarantino. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think the only you're missing the Django. I think that the Django hit so hard and is still kind of going that there's another generation that Yeah, I think that's know. my kids' generation. I think they're calling Gen Z. Is that is that I think what they're who cares what they're calling themselves? <laughs> I don't give a shit. Um they're gonna come up with some name for it and then cry about it. That's the old old guy and me coming out there. Um I get off I my lawn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I totally agree with it. Like, um, Pulp Fiction was just like, it wasn't a pebble in the water. It was like a rock. And so was this. I remember seeing this in the theater and just like, oh. and, you know, like my kid was born. I named him Quentin, you know, just a few months after this and everything. Like this movie had a huge impact on me and is my favorite all-time film. The two of them together. I don't separate them anymore. I wish that they would just release everything together. The records, <sighs> the DVDs, the Blu-rays, everything just, you know. I don't know why they haven't yet. So I think he's waiting until this is a retirement project, but it's like trying to get Jim Cameron to release the abyss, you know, <laughs> I mean, he's too busy working on those screensaver movies. Stupid so. <laughs> Avatar movies. Yeah. It is very frustrating that the whole bloody affair, which was announced years ago, I want to say 2006 is when I first remember hearing that it was going to be out. The 06, 07 timeframe is it was going to be put out on DVD. We're going to get it. Because he has an actual version of this. He has played it a few times at the Beverly. And I'm sure there's a couple people out there who have actually had the opportunity to see that with their own eyeballs. That is something I have not had a chance to do. And it's something I would love to, but I don't know why he's waited so long not to put it out. And it's 20 years. You would think that if any time, we're hitting coming up on 20 years. but Which I've, se- I've seen it. I have, it on, I have a Blu-ray copy that's um, an illegal one that you know I throw in. I, if he releases it, I'll buy it. But crank yeah, caller, crank caller. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Wrong number. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hoping one day sooner than later we will finally get to see it because as awesome as it is to see the film in two parts, as I've said on many episodes of when we talk about Kill Bill, the most disappointing thing is that when we get to see the bride see BB at the end of volume two, with it was once a sings film, because see his once sings film, that surprise is so much more powerful than knowing about the little... Which I understand they had to have a cliffhanger. I, I get the cliffhanger part, so you come back for a volume two. I get it, but I would prefer to see the whole thing in one big stretch, had a little intermission, then come back and not known about this cliffhanger and waited until she makes that corner, and then holy shit, she's there. So it changes everything about the film. Everything she has done in the film up to that point was because she was getting revenge for the death of her daughter, and she's not dead. So it changes the whole landscape. This movie was such a kind of a mind fuck in the theater because you go to it and the credits has got Carradine in it. It's got Michael Madsen in it. You watch the whole <laughs> movie and they're not in it. And you're like, you know, like there's so much stuff that's built up through the movie. And you're like, what the, where are these people? Like I saw this trailer and she's, this guy jumped up on the end of her sword and all this stuff is going on in the original trailer. And then you go see the movie and none of it's in it. And then, you know, he's, she know that her daughter's still alive. And then, you know, the zombie Lonely Shepherd kicks in and it, there's the credits. You're like, what the fuck? And, you know, so because I don't think I knew that there was going to be a part two when I saw this. I, I don't remember, but I remember seeing it and it being very, very impactful for me. I went and saw Lady Snowblood and went mm-hmm. and tracked down all the other movies and stuff that I'm sure you're going to be covering before. We just this. covered. Yeah, we just covered on the episode ahead of this. Yes. Yep. So. Yeah, I went and I found a bunch of the stuff and I've read books on it and, you know, because there's all these shots that are just taken, you know, that 
I see it and it's like, well, that's that's from Gone in 60 Seconds, which I knew in the theater when I saw it because, I mean, we found out in other podcasts with you that I'm a huge Gone in 60 Seconds fan. So, <laughs> like, you know, like I started picking up on it right away. And I've got two books on it that if anybody doesn't have the Kill Bill case files, like Google it, go on eBay, you can pick them up for like five bucks, but it goes like shot for shot through it of, you know, all the homages and stuff. So, Well, in case you don't pay attention to my social stuff, but my season one, all the... Stuff I did for the actual episodes was replication of the Pulp Fiction titles. And now in season two, my second favorite movie of all time from the Tarantino world is Kill Bill. It's all Kill Bill. So there was there was a there was a reason I did the things I did. Yeah, I love these movies. So like yeah, I can't watch I cannot watch one without the other. Like it just I have to start it right up. So well let's jump right into the first half of the double bill soundtrack, which is Kill Bill Vine One. Now it's time to reach on your pews and pull out your Church of Tarantino hymnal as we begin our devotional with the soundtrack from Kill Bill, Volume 1. This soundtrack was released on September 23, 2003 by Mavic Records. It features 22 tracks from various artists and has a running time of 47 minutes and 2 seconds. The majority of this album was arranged, orchestrated, and produced by the RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. The soundtrack has been certified gold in Australia, Belgium, Canada, France, Greece, Switzerland, the UK, and the US. And has gone on to sell nearly a million copies worldwide while reaching number one on Billboard's soundtracks chart. And we kick it off with the first musical track being Bang Bang my Baby Shot Me Down, from Frank Sinatra's daughter, Miss Nancy Sinatra. Nancy Sinatra is the eldest daughter of Frank Sinatra and began her own singing career in 1957. In 1966, she covered the Sharehead, and to this day, it is the best-known cover of the song. And this song is heard over the film's opening titles, as well as when the bride enters Mr. Hattori Hanzo's sushi bar later in the film. And I recently, at the time of this recording, had put out a post on my five favorite opening title songs in the Tarantino verse. And I think this was four. Yep. And I do love this. I, this is such a good fucking song. And it is, as we've talked about before, on, not just on the hymnals, but on all the other podcasts, nothing he does is just for happenstance. This opening title song completely literally tells the entire story of what is going to be coming up, or at least the, it's like literally a backstory of what, of what happens is we're basically getting the love story of Bill and the Bride through the song from Mrs. Nancy Sinatra that just tells us about that the two of them were lovers and then her baby shot her down. What an amazing opening track. How do you enjoy this track and where does it rank for your opening title songs in the Tarantino verse? So you already know that it's number one. It's my favorite one. Yeah, I dropped way too much money on a seven-inch single of this thing. So <laughs> I imagine. I imagine. Yeah, I have a multicolored one and everything. Um, I did want to fill in. There's one. This song is used in Kill Bill 2. Um, and if you blink, you will miss it. It's right after Bud shoots the bride during the trailer scene. And there's a Robert Rodriguez score. And he plays the intro in there just a little bit. Um, it's part of that Rodriguez score that no one's ever heard outside of. But it is in there, and like it, I th- kind of thought it implied because you don't know any backstory about any of the stuff that's going on, like in that four years. And it almost like the way that it's used at the beginning of the film to tell the story about Bill and the Bride. I was wondering if it has something to do with Bud and the Bride as well, because there's all these looks and comments and stuff back and forth that they may have had you know, some kind of attraction at one point or something. And like, I thought maybe that's why it's there, but it is there. If you listen to it, it's almost like a twinkle, twinkle little star thing. That's, you know, right mm-hmm. after he shoots her and she's laying on the ground and she, I think he gives her the shot and then it's there. Um, But yeah, like 
I I love this this song. Like I'd never heard it, and considering that it's written by Sonny Bono for a Share album, and I don't know if you listened <laughs> to the Share version, but no, Nancy Sinatra's no, no walking her boots all over Share's ass with this one. So, <laughs> and it's surprising that look at Nancy Sinatra is like one of those many unfortunate children of major stars who it's hard to get out of that shadow. I mean, but she does have her these boots are made for walking, which is she's most known for. But it's interesting that I think this song is her best song because it's just it's just it's simple it's just a guitar and her and it's, it's just so absolutely beautiful oh it's beautiful the vibrato beautiful. guitar and stuff on it it really disarms you at the beginning of this action this huge action movie that you're not really sure what you're getting into the first time and it comes in with that yeah and it's, and it's just her silhouette of her laying you know like so it's it's such a cool opening that it's still one of my favorites. Like I, I don't know. Like we go through all this stuff back at all, all every time on one of these where it's really hard to pick your favorite of anything yeah, from any of these is. movies. But this is mine. So well, if you watch it the first time, you see her get shot. We go to this title sequence, and because of the way it's shot with the silhouette, if you if this is your first time through, I remember my first time through. I thought she was dead. I thought this was her funeral. And then we jump to her going to kill Bill. Like there's nothing in the beginning that says she survives. You know, like if you're the first time viewer of this film and you watch that opening title sequence, she looks like she is laying in a coffin and, you know, there's going to be some kind of viewing hour. Like she doesn't survive this, this, you know. And again, you don't know if it's that from the, him shooting her or if it's further down. All you know is that she wants to kill Bill. But you have, you know, first time seeing it, you have no context of how this film's going to end. It's a Tarantino film. So. Even back then, even though this is his fourth, you had a pretty good idea that, you know, all bets are off. He could do anything he wants. And so it's a great song, a great opening title sequence, because it really does disarm you as to, you know, you get the backstory of her and Bill without having to do a whole, you know, section of it. Just do a song. But yet you also are kind of led to believe that maybe she doesn't make it to the end of the film. Maybe she does die. Maybe she doesn't kill Bill. And with him, you never know, because he's fucking with the order of the movie through the whole thing as you're exactly. watching. So exactly. You don't, you don't know. And then you find out that she's like the toughest goddamn person on the planet. <laughs> so <laughs> she's, she's a superhero. Like, you know, like she Yo, really is like, all the, all the argument about Django, like his first yeah. superhero he wrote is the bride. She's climbing up, jumping up walls during the house of blue leaves and, you know, doing all kinds of crazy stunts that people don't do. So, yeah, she's the superhero. I'll argue that one with Steve Smith all day, you know. <laughs> well, the funny thing about that is is she technically is a shitty person because she's a killer. Like, she yeah. is just as bad as all the rest of them. She went around the world making vessels, wanted to kill people. But the genius of writing and the genius of films is all she's it takes is for us to fall, for, for to become sympathetic. And what makes us sympathetic towards her is she was killed on her wedding day when she was pregnant. So that's all we had to see in the beginning. And we were like, poor her. There are people, and if you went to the reality of life, there are victims of hers that are glad this bitch got what she deserved. You know what I mean? Like there's there's two sides to every coin. Yeah. And so we're getting the side where she's the hero of her own story. And just like I said, if this film plays all the way out, every person she kills until she makes the corner at Bill's Hacienda to meet him, and she sees her daughter, she has killed all these people because she thought her daughter was dead. Yeah. She killed all of these people because she thought her daughter was dead. 
And why and the fact that she's so? not he's a lying he's a lying shit. Exactly. And then this part of me thinks that maybe he wanted to see her to kill all these people. Like with Bill, you just never know. But it's just that interesting thing of of humanity where it's not that hard, you know. I think that someone said, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Same kind of thing, you know. One person's hero is another person's villain. I mean, as Americans, we're the hero of our own stories all the time. Just like the British were the heroes of their own story all the time, but a lot of people don't see it the same way. Yeah. Well, and that kid too, like you put those two together to have a child, the kid should have hooves of pure evil, you know, as, but he also we'll does, never he does, know because we will never get volume three. Yeah, I know. He, he does say like, and towards the end of part two, like, you know, like you can be a real cunt sometimes, but you're my favorite person. <laughs> like it's to- totally, it's her like, yeah. you know, but you can't help but not. F- and she's such a badass that it's like, look at all the shit that happens to her through these movies. I mean, you know, she she's raped, beaten, shot, attacked, you know, like all this stuff, mm-hmm. baby taken away, you know, put in a coma for four years, like all, all that stuff. And, you know, it's I can I guess I can see why she would go on like this big, you know, trail of revenge and kill everybody and to try to get to these, you know, four or five. Oh, so. I agree. But I just always like that that duality of it where you if you look at it from the real context of who she is, we're fans of hers. But at the end of the day. There are people in in that if you were in that world who are like fuck this bitch she got everything she deserved you know it's just it's just interesting it's just I love that part of it I love that part of storytelling where your heroes aren't just black and white I love that's what I loved about Breaking Bad being one of my favorite TV shows ever yep. is I love the duality of here we are as human beings siding with what in reality should be evil or you know it it helps us twist what reality in our minds are of what good and evil are. It gives you the ability to see things from different points of view, which is what I enjoy. Yeah, and but I think Bud nails that on the head when he, you know, that little lady, she deserves a revenge because she to die. It's such a... But then again, yeah. so does yep. she. So I guess we'll so does she. just see. So, <laughs> I, I, love that. I love that line, the way that he, his whole delivery of all of that, and, you know, it, yeah. it ties that movie up right in the middle of the movie, basically. Mm-hmm. But speaking of excitement, we get our second track, That Certain Female by Charlie Feathers. Charlie Feathers was an American musician associated with the rockabilly scene of the 1950s. The song was released as a single in 1974. It is one of two of his singles to be featured in Kill Bill. The other is Can't Hardly Stand It, which appears in volume two. This song is played as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, side characters in the Tarantinoverse is back to life. He he has a Jesus Christ resurrection because when we last saw him about seven years earlier, he was shot in Pete's World of Liquor. <laughs> and uh, he died at the hands of the Gecko Brothers and Mr. Earl McGraw and his <laughs> front dashboard full of sunglasses comes pulling into the Two Pines to meet his son, number one played by his actual son. And unfortunately, Mr. Earl McGraw is no longer with us. But God damn, if I don't love or Mr. Earl McGraw, the guy who plays him, Jesus Christ. Yeah, Mr. Earl McGraw. Yeah, Michael Parks is no longer with us, but I love Earl McGraw. He's just such a great character. Every moment he's in this movie, even though he plays two different people, Mr. Parks does. Earl McGraw is always an exciting character. He's exciting to see in this film. He was exciting when he pops up again in Death Proof. You just get excited to see Michael Parks play Earl fucking McGraw. And as I've always said, I would love to have had a little TV show of him just being a Texas Ranger. I would have died to see that kind of TV show. And I loved him in Planet Terror too. Like he made it through. Oh, he's great. Yeah. 
he makes it through the zombie apocalypse to be killed by the gecko brothers because one of them's full of shit you know <laughs> so. i know he was killed because of his commentary on that one lady's son who worked at the diner that's what happened he he got he got his comeuppance <laughs> None, there's not a single line that isn't delivered by him that isn't fantastic. No, no I love the green glasses gag. Like, oh, <laughs> it's fantastic. Glasses. But not only that, this song by Charlie Feathers is fantastic. It is yep. the perfect song Intro. to be the, yeah. basically, yeah, it's his theme song. From that moment on, it's Earl McGraw's theme song. And unfortunately, they didn't get it. They couldn't bring it back in Death Proof. But it would have been great to somehow have it play somehow, you know, even if it was over the speakers in the hospital to have it play one more time because it's just, I mean, it's a classic moment. It's just, it's just so fucking ingrained in me when I hear it. And you know, it's, it's one, it's this old time country, you know, it's yeah, that old outlaw type of country. Yeah. The country yeah, music, and, country fans nowadays have no fun clue to this. The bro country yeah, shit. Cause he's got like this weird, like, I guess they call it a hiccup style of singing. Mm -hmm. right? Cause he's also on Kill Bill volume two when the bride, when they're digging the grave for the bride, that country song in the background. And he has like this really weird singing style that, um, in my research on him, like he like claimed that he went and did he was a musician in Sun Studios in the early days and claimed that he had went and done some arrangements for Elvis songs that he never got credit for. And he died kind of a bitter guy wondering why all of his contemporaries became huge stars and he didn't. Hmm. And it's kind of sad, but because of the soundtrack, like I went out and found like I have a record of his and stuff of his greatest hits, and it's it's just as good as the rest of this mm -hmm. stuff. So, well, Mr. Tarantino, make sure that Mr. Charlie Feathers will never be forgotten as he is immortalized as the theme song for the great Earl McGraw on Kill Bill Volume One. Yeah, that's a very good song. Maybe not as good as song number three, The Grand Duel Part Prima from Louis Bakalov. Louis Bakalov was an Argentinian film composer whose film credits include Django, A Bullet for the General, Caliber 9, Mr. Scarface, and 1972's The Grand Duel, which this track originates from. This is one of two of his songs that appear in Kill Bill, the other being Summertime Killer from the 1972 film of the same name. Now, this song plays during the very first section of Oren Ishii's anime origin story. It covers the length of the murder of her two parents at the hands of boss Matsumoto and his smiling not Bill swordsman all right it's not bill um so just Ooh. so everyone understand yeah now you sir put out this soundtrack very recently on vinyl yep first time was it this movie or was yeah. it the actual movie it came from the reason that you fell in love and wanted to have this song or be able to put out this actual album so when this came out on blu-ray because I got it on Blu-ray, I think. Maybe you got it on DVD. I don't remember which which one came first. Maybe even VHS. Who knows? But, like, I paused the the music tracks at the end, and I went looking for it. And, like, the CD for The Grand Duel had been released one time over in Japan, and it was, like, $450 to get a copy off eBay because it had only been released once. It's been released on CD now a few times in different variations and everything. And, yeah, I went – I've loved this, and I've had downloads of it and stuff, and I've listened to it because it's such a cool piece of music. It doesn't sound like your, your typical spaghetti western, especially one starring Lee Van Cleef. So mm -hmm. when I started up the label, it was one of the first things. I was like, hey, you guys – you know, like I figured out who – who had it and I'm messaging them and everything. And while I was messaging, there's a lady that sings in once upon a time in the West and the good, the bad and the ugly on the ecstasy of gold, the operatic singer, her son is the one that runs the company that licenses all this mm. stuff out. So I've been emailing back and forth with him and that's, you know, like I've, I'm kind of working on maybe doing Django down the road here, the original 1966 Django. version. 
yeah, like I, it's never been out in the on vinyl in the U.S. This one had never been out on vinyl at all, and it's the same people that own all of them. So like, I kind of got an in there where I might be able to do a couple of these westerns that have never been out on vinyl, and this one is just it's. I ended up getting Mike Malloy, the guy that wrote the Lee Van Cleef biography, to do the liner notes and stuff on the back, and I actually got a copy to Tarantino. Gala Avery messaged me and said that he got it and he loves it. And wow. I was pretty excited about that. I sent one down to the podcast because it wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him and the music yeah. and stuff that he did. And yeah, it's such a cool piece to like, um, I don't know if you knew or not, but there's actually three parts from it in the. Yes. Yes. It's on the extended uh, soundtrack, but this is the one that actually makes the original release soundtrack. Yeah. Cause they used um, mix two for grand dual a, and then they used M 10 and then part one. And then it cuts in the middle of it to the long day of vengeance, which is, Armando Chavoli, I think, for what right is Oren's father is killed. Um, there's that different, you can tell it's a completely mm-hmm. different piece of music, but um, I didn't know that. Like, I never really paid attention to it. I was like listening to it. I'm like, where the hell is this? And it's not in there, but same harmonica player from Once Upon a Time in the West, the Franco de Gemini. Um, and then obviously, Edda Della Orso, that operatic singing that you hear is from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and everything it has so many cool ties to. To everything and the music doesn't sound like anything else that spaghetti western when you listen to it it's so sinister sounding and i don't know how like how, how do you pick that you know like to, yeah. to fit into this because you have a you know like a triangle shaped hole and you've got a square peg and tarantino takes the peg and just sands it just enough to fit in the thing and then there you go and it works every time you've you said it too like everything he picks works and this shouldn't work for Mm-mm. an animated japanese anime you know section no, in a movie it shouldn't. the anime bonus. section shouldn't work yeah you it, know like it, it, we talked about it on the uh under the influence when we were talking about uh, lady snowblood and how basically the genesis for this is that in you know because Lady Snowball was made on very shoestring budget, and in order to do some of the backstory, they used pictures from the Magna to kind of tell her story yeah. that had already been done. So, and that was just kind of like Tarantino was like, "Hmm, I wonder if I could do the same to tell the backstory for Oren, and we're going to do an anime style, and that shouldn't work. Works beautifully. The music, this stuff, like we're going to get to a couple songs in a little bit, especially when we get to the Oren versus the Bride fight, and the, some of the music in that shouldn't work. It shouldn't, it shouldn't. work. You know, like it, it should ruin the scene. But somehow it fucking doesn't. And it's just being a person who's very confident and knowing what they know. They just, they know. You know, like, I'm sure as he's writing, he's envisioning it, and he's like, this is going to fucking work. Like, he can feel the beats. He can feel how him and Sally are going to edit this. How He just knows. And it just... It fucking hits. It hits beautifully. Yeah, and there's not very many directors that that are able to do this at the mastery that he no. has. I mean, you got Scorsese, Edgar Wright, Rob Zombie does it once in a while. There's you know a few tricks like he'll throw Freebird at the end of Devil's mm-hmm. Rejects, and it's like it's completely changed how I look at Freebird. But like every one of these tracks on here, like there's a couple of them coming up that it's like, how the fuck does that work? And it works <laughs> I know. so good yes. that he turned it into a fucking phone ringer that's in other movies. You know, like. And yeah, so are you talking about song number four? Yes, Twisted I Nerves I by Bernard Herman. <laughs> Bernard Herman was an American composer and conductor, best known for his work in film, where he won an Oscar for 1941's The Devil and Daniel Webster. This song comes from the 1961 film of the same name. It was also used in several episodes of American Horror Story, in a 2015 Honda car commercial, and as a ringtone in Death Proof. As my friend started, this actually starts off being whistled by L. Driver as she enters the hospital to kill the bride who is in a coma. And then after about the first few bars of L whistling it, 
it gives way to the actual piece of music. And as my colleague mentioned, it becomes the ringtone for, oh God, why am I, uh, Rosario, Rosario Dawson's character. Uh, character, why am I Barbie, blanking? Yeah, Abigail, yeah, something like that. Yeah, she's just so beautiful, I can't, I can't focus right now. Um, <laughs> You're watching Alexander it, it again beca- or it becomes her. It becomes her ringtone in the movie, and it's just fantastic. I mean, they do... Two nods to this movie in Death Proof. Obviously, the Pussy Wagon 2, that's Kim's car, and then the Twisted Nerve as the fucking ringtone. I noticed another one the other night when I was watching it. The cheerleader outfit, um, her it says Vipers. Yes, so it's yes. Cute, another callback Vipers. to Kill Bill. So yes. sorry, I keep adding these to your list. As all you right. Know, like, if you ever do these again, you're going to be like, Sean, what are the... Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everyone I have on seems to have, have gotten in touch or getting close to touch with uh, Tarantino, and I can't get a fucking whiff. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, I got the, I got a fist Nothing. bump recently. So. Fist bump. Yeah. Avery Gala, what's her name? Gala Avery. She's reaching out to you. Sin's getting shit. What the fuck? Jesus H. It'll happen. It'll happen for you someday. You'll just turn. You'll be at a urinal and you'll look, and it'll be (laughs) you. That happened to me with Sid Haig. So like, yeah, my first horror convention, I was standing at the urinal and looked over at Sid Haig. Well, unfortunately, I'm a fan of a man who doesn't do much outside of his own stuff. So unfortunately, unless I'm in Tel Aviv anytime soon, which I don't foresee myself being anywho as we get back on to the twisted nerve what a fucking track again why is whistling why does it work why does l driver played by the amazing daryl hannah even though i know my friend ryan rebelkin does not like her in this film why does it work with her whistling and then the song keep going like it it's one of those songs that should annoy the shit out of you yeah, it, it shouldn't work but it works beautifully and it's sinister the way she's doing it, it's sinister well, yeah, like if you had a couple down. kids whistling this on a playground you'd be like oh it's you know like a fun kid song but when you give it to her with the eye patch and walking in there's such a sinister moment to it that well you got to remember the guy that wrote this also wrote psycho and cape fear and you know taxi driver there's a lot of you know Sinister music. Are you saying Mr. Bernard Herman may or may not enjoy sociopaths? Yeah, that a little bit. And <laughs> you know, like the, this, it, it's her theme music. Again, he introduced the character with this music, and you hear the you hear the music, and she comes on. You're like, oh, okay, Daryl Hannah. I haven't seen her in anything since Wall Street. You know, <laughs> so yeah, and she completely steals this. I know that some people don't like her. Um, it's okay. I'm, I'm up in the air with it. Like she, she does a good job. At it. I've seen her in interviews after the film. She seems to be a little bit batshit crazy. However, that batshit craziness, she was able to wrangle into this character, and I thought she played a pretty goddamn good. So I found some stuff on this though. Actually, like Tarantino showed this film at one of his curated film festivals, I think in Austin, Texas, and nobody had seen it in the theater. And he comes out and he talks about it and everything. And this theme was whistled by everybody at that viewing the entire weekend. Like, they're whistling at it and stuff back and forth. I found, like, a really? whole bunch of stuff on, I think, some YouTube videos where people that were at the event everything, that's how catchy it was for him. But um, also, mm. have you seen the movie, Twisted Nerve? No, I have not. So I have not seen in it. In the movie, the guy pretends to have a, to be mentally impaired. The movie's kind of controversial because he, you know, of what he's pretending to be because he's infatuated with a girl and he kills anyone that gets in his way. And it mm. kind of reminds me of a little bit of this backstory that we were, I mentioned earlier that we don't know about because like when Bud answers, you know, no, no, it's the other brother, you hateful bitch. You know, like <laughs> what has she done to drive everybody away from Bill in, you know, those four years so that yeah. she could take the bride's place? Because obviously we know that she hates the bride. And it kind of like when I was, I, when I saw the movie here for the first time recently, probably like six months ago, it reminded me a little bit of that where 
you know, like you don't really, she's doing anything she can to push anybody away to have Bill all to herself. Yeah. And it kind of, yeah, that's what the movie's about. If anybody hasn't seen it, it's pretty good. The score, mm-hmm. I think, is better than the movie. So so close your eyes, folks, and just listen to the, to the movie. To the tones so of Bernard better. Herman. It's <laughs> like an audio book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were talking about that break that I want to go, that dun, 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 like it, it's like, oh, shit, what's yeah. going to happen now? You know, like, because normally yeah. you hear music like that, people are getting killed. Yeah, because you're not really sure what's going to happen with her as she's walking down that hallway and where she's going. Well, it also becomes the Brian De Palma section of the film. Yeah, totally. You know, and so, so and, and yep. it just, it works really well. It just works really, really well. The man's a master. It makes you wonder if he'd have made this film three years after Jackie Brown, if it would have been as good. Because he had all this time to think about all this, you know, what he was going to do and everything. Because yeah. I, I heard he had most of it, like, in his head. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. It's almost like he takes a long time to write film scripts. But apparently, not anymore. Anywho. <laughs> that fucking TV show, where is it? <laughs> it is it. Uh, that brings us to song number five, which is an interesting one. Ode to Oren Ishii by the amazing The Rizza from the Wu-Tang Clan. The Rizza is an American rapper, actor, filmmaker, and record producer. He is the de facto leader of the hip-hop group Wu-Tang Clan. The Rizza sampled Franco Bixio's, Fabio Frizzi's, and Vince Tempera's title track to the 1977 Jalo film Sete Note Enero, or Seven Notes in Black. On this soundtrack, he raps over the scored music. However, in the film, just the scored piece is used. Now, oddly enough, this song isn't used during a scene with Oren in it. The instrumental of it plays when Buck returns to the bride's hospital room to find his friend the rapist trucker dead, the bride missing, and it culminates with her slicing through his Achilles. But it's just the instrumental. Now, I haven't heard the soundtrack in a while, so listening to it just get revamped up for this episode, I did not realize that the RZA actually raps over the actual music. And then it's just a very interesting <laughs> ode to Oren Ishii. And I love the music he put for it. It's phenomenal. It's weird that, you know, obviously it was probably meant to go somewhere. And then in the editing process, Tarantino's like, look, I like this much better for here. Let's kill the, the, the vocals and we'll put it here. And it never makes it. If someone said to you, Ode to Oren Ishii, where section is that? And everyone is going to most likely say, it's got to be somewhere when, with Oren's on screen. Nope. We haven't even met Oren yet. <laughs> we have not met Oren yet. And uh, we get this little ditty, which the actual instrumental of it, I love. It's in the film. It's amazing. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the rap's all right. It's not. It's better than some of the stuff that's out today, but, you know. But I'm glad that they went with just the instrumental. How about you? Um, So I uh, do not like the version that's on the, the record that came out. Um, I, Yeah, no, I, I really do wish it was just the instrumental, I'm, I'm, if I'm honest. Being a horror fanatic, when this came out, the, this film score got a bunch of fanfare from the horror people because the song in the background is called Seven Notes in Black by Bixio, Fritzy, and Tempera. They did it for a movie called Set Note in Nero, which is also called The Psychic, which is a Lucio Fulci film. It's a Jello film. And um, the cut had only ever had a seven-inch single release in 1977. It'll cost you $250 still today because I've got it on my want list and it's still $250. Bucks. Like, I'll probably never own it. But back then, before all this, it was a $500 to $1,000 seven-inch record to own. Um, horror fans, like they heard that it was going to be on the in Kill Bill and they were waiting, hoping it was going to be, you could actually hear it because there wasn't even a CD release of this score for this film yet. And it came out, I think in 2006 after Kill Bill is when finally like somebody went and released all of it to CD and it just got released by Mondo on vinyl 
Mondo Records here in 2020, which I own. The score is okay, but this is like the pinnacle of it. And mm -hmm. any Family Guy um, fans will know that this track just showed up um, on an episode where Lois, every time she goes, she's not being noticed by her coffee guys. And every time that she gets <laughs> mad, she hears this music. So it is on the Family Guy episode, used almost in the same way <laughs> that it was used in Kill Bill as a homage to Tarantino. So we were watching it one night. I'm like, seven notes in black. Like, no shit, really. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, the thing's got quite the the history of this song where like horror fans were pissed. They went out and bought it and it wasn't on there, but it is on there. And then somebody's rapping over it. So they were I remember like there was people on message boards that were just irate that there was rap over this, this track that people have been wanting for all this time. Cause you know, before maybe on Napster, but it might've been cheaper to sample than to put the whole thing on. I don't know. Like still had to pay, pay to put it in the film, but probably was cheaper to sample on an, on the album than put it in full, but who knows? But back then the licensing wasn't absolutely crazy. It could be something as simple as the tapes weren't found and he's used the seven inch yeah. record. You know, like they couldn't, they didn't yeah. know where the tapes were and stuff. So it works so well with the scene and adding like that little bit of giallo to it of horror. Well, yeah, because we pan down and yeah, we cut, we cut an Achilles and woof. that leads us to song number six, Run Fay Run by the late great, somewhat crazy at times in his land of his years, Isaac Hayes. Chef. Chef, before he went to Scientology. <laughs> This song is the seventh track on the soundtrack from the 1974 crime action film, Three Tough Guys, starring Lino Ventura, Fred Williamson, and Isaac Hayes. Isaac composed the song along with the rest of the soundtrack. The song Hung Up On My Baby from that soundtrack was sampled by the Ghetto Boys for their hit, Mind Playing Tricks On Me. The song plays during Oren's anime section when she assassinates a general in his car. So right after she gets done killing Boss Masumoto, she's in that tight leather Get up standing on top of the building with the giant <laughs> sniper rifle. And that guy from, I forget which South American or Central American country, he's got the flags. He's just laughing with two girls. <laughs> and they're just won some beauty contest. And then the back of his head gets blown the fuck out. I love it. As this plays. Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. The whole section of her uh, origin story is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And this song just happens to be one of the great ones, you know, in it. And then you're starting to realize at this point, I mean, he starts in Jackie Brown a bit, but it doesn't make the soundtracks. The taking of scores from other films or other TV shows, and now as once Kill Bill kicks in, he's not just doing needle drops of favorite pop music. He's now doing it from the movies he loves as well, or the shows he loves. And so he's his wings are growing as he yeah. is just starting to fly. And this shouldn't work either. He just took three parts four parts from spaghetti westerns yeah. and threw it over you know like this story about a you know half japanese half chinese american army brat you know to tell yeah. her backstory it should not work at all just this mm -mm. drums that keep layering in and everything yeah. over it and it it's going in beat with a lot of the stuff that's going on in the animation and everything and it shouldn't work and then it mm -mm. does and it's worked mm -hmm. so well <laughs> and yeah, like I, I, I don't even know what to say, but like I love this track. Like it made me go out and buy. I think the album is called like Three Tough Guys, and he it's from this yeah. the score from it. And then he put out an album called Tough Guys. It's on there. Like I, I own that one too. Like it's very, very cool track. And the whole album is is very cool, just like this. And then you get all that cool bass and guitar and stuff that kicks in at the end. That you know the Duke of New York just throws down. So the Duke of New York, a number one. My favorite role of his ever is that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Still still my favorite movie from the great 
Mr. Carpenter. But it leads to another inserted track from a TV show that may or may not have sent my special guest here down a dark rabbit hole, oh, and uh, we'll get into it in a second. But it's Green Hornet from Al Hurt. Al Hurt was a Grammy Award-winning American trumpeter and band leader. This song comes from a Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov orchestral interlude known as Flight of the Bumblebee. Billy May arranged the jazz style piece modeled after the song for the theme song of the TV show The Green Hornet, on which Al Hurt performed the trumpet solo. Hurt recorded a longer stereo version of the theme with a somewhat different arrangement for his 1966 album The Horn Meets the Hornet, which Tarantino used in Kill Bill Volume 1. And this song is heard as the bride arrives into Tokyo by plane and continues as Oren, Sophie Fatal, and the bride, along with some of the crazy 88, make their way uh, to their fateful reunion at the House of Blue Leaves in Tokyo, Japan. And it's just a great little fucking almost Flight of the Bumblebee-esque sounding trumpet song. It's Russian. It's just, (laughs) it's fantastic. Yeah, It's fantastic. And it works, like you said. You can't put anything else in there. Like, no. if you strip away the songs they've put in and you tried to insert things like they did in Donnie Darko, the worst ever director's cut I've ever watched because they ruin it with changing the goddamn score. I just wrote the about original that. Mu- music. Oh, God. You know, and normally I'm a person who's like, oh, I enjoy the, you know, director's cut because sometimes, you know, you got a director's cut because the studio was just being too tough and they allowed them to release it on DVD. Like, my favorite version of True Romance is the director's cut. And. You watch Donnie Darko, and they change the music, and it just changes the mood of the film they completely. Like they're they used um, Echo and the Bunnymen, the Killing Moon is like over him oh, riding the so bike, good. and then they yes. threw in um, I don't remember the they name did, of the song. I think it was another Tears for Fears song. No, that didn't it's work. Uh, In Excess. Oh, yes, 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 yes. In Excess. Yes. What's over? And the first time I saw it, I'm it's like, this just it. what are they doing? And then yeah, they ruined it. There's mm-hmm. there's so much, but it had become so iconic in that movie that that's what fucked yes. it up. And now if they tried to do that with this, it'd be like, no, you can't do that. Exactly, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's certain things, and I, you know, again, I don't want to just say it's Tarantino, but since the Tarantino era started, and we really got these people really paying attention to putting needle drops into their films and, and being good at it. Some movies are so iconic with the songs they've chosen for them that when you try to change them out, it just wouldn't work. It would change the whole mood of the film, and. The Green Hornet should not work here, but if you don't have the Green Hornet here, it's not gonna nothing, nothing, nothing's gonna work. It just isn't gonna happen. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a Russian song that's 120, 123 years old now. That was written, you know, as part of the flight of the bumblebee from the the tale of Tsar Sultan from a. It's a Russian interlude, and it just is. It's so well placed here and cool, and yeah, like the trumpet. Like I, I played trumpet in junior high. Like I could. This has got to be impossible to play. So, (laughs) dude's got a lot of air in him. His nickname is the Round Mound of Sound, Mr. L. Hurt. So, (laughs) well, Mr. L. Hurt sent you into a rabbit hole. I'd never seen the show. Like, I I used to run from the bus to watch the 1966 Batman, and the Green Hornet has never been that popular. Like, my first real brush with it was the dragon the bruce lee movie which i love yes and Mm -hmm. the way that they do it and everything like you know and then it came up again here in once upon a time in hollywood it has two call outs in kill bill volume one with the you know the bald guy in the kato mask and then Mm -hmm. you know they use it here so obviously tarantino likes it so i started watching some of the episodes some of them are really good some of them are terrible but they're in the same vein and playfulness a little bit maybe a little bit more serious than the batman but they're very good. Like, I'll probably finish. I think there's 27 episodes. I'll figure out a way to watch them all. They're really good. So, <laughs> And, like, I think I mentioned to you in my messaging with you, the 
they did the Seth Rogen one, and you got the Christoph Waltz tie-in now too, because he's the bad guy in yeah. a Russian bad guy, which yeah. <laughs> so and I saw it. it was a very disappointing film. Yeah. That's just my personal opinion. Other people may like it. Fantastic. It's because of Seth wrong. Rogen. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so. Well, that'll lead us to song number eight. And since you'll have your questions at the end of your favorites, this is my favorite track on this soundtrack. And it literally has become the theme song for at least Kill Bill Volume 1. It's a song that almost everyone knows. That if you've heard it, it's been used a thousand times in things. But Battle Without Honor or Humanity from Tomiyasu Hote. This song is an instrumental piece of Japanese rock music that was originally featured in the 2000 Jung Sakamoto film, New Battle Without Honor and Humanity, which Hote scored and starred in. In 2020, the song was named the 80th best guitar instrumental by Young Guitar Magazine. It has also been featured in such films as Transformers, Shrek the Third, Hotel for Dogs, and most recently, the Super Mario Brothers movie. This amazing fucking track plays as Oren and her posse make their way in slow motion through the House of Blue Leaves to their private dining room. I have said this before. I thought that the opening walk of the dogs to Little Green Bag was the coolest walk up ever until this fucking thing happened. And ever since then, I've absolutely loved it. I used to work many years ago for a AHL hockey team in the New Hampshire area, and we used this song for a a video we put up on the board to introduce some of the players, and I shot it just like it in the hallways. I tried to do it shot for shot to make sure that we could replicate Battle Without Honor Humanity when Oren and the fucking Crazy 88, her high members of the Crazy 88, walk into the House of Blues, and I fucking love this moment. That song doesn't get you ready to fucking whatever, whatever it could be. I mean, you could you could kick that on. I mean, I know people are like, oh, my romantic song. That should be a romantic theme song. You kick that bad boy, and you know it's about to go down. Walk into right? a bedroom with this song. Bam, <laughs> but yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then hit the beats just right. Bam, and you just bam. Out come the clothes. You're good to go. I'm just saying. Battle with Honor Humanity has been used in a thousand different either movies. People use it in uh, sports to introduce teams. It's for walk-ups, all kinds of stuff. So I love this song. You, sir. How do you feel about battle without honor or humanity? Which is interesting that that's the name of it, but it's actually never used in a battle. It's just used as a very cool walk-up song. Well, it's from a movie of the same name, I think, from 2000. Yes. I've not seen the movie. I've not seen any of them. Um, I know that they're out on Blu-ray here in the U.S. from Arrow Video, but um, I love the guitar solo. First time I saw it in theaters, I was like, oh, shit, like, what's going on now? Now it's been used, like, I found, like, a list of, like, 20 films that's been used in. I mean, it was just yeah. used in the new Super Mario Brothers movie, Transformers, Shrek, Kung Fu Panda. Like, it's been used so much that the first time I heard it, I loved it. Now I'm just like, oh, they're playing this fucking song again. I don't hate it, but it's not. It's just been overused now. It's almost like there's something streaming that I'm one of my, my wife's watching. Misery Lou is the main theme song on it. Really? It's like the 50,000th time I've heard it, along with Woo Really? From the five, six, seven, yeah, well, eight, that, into that that's second, been yeah. getting used. I mean, Tarantino, like they they owe him residuals from you know some of these songs that are just getting used for licensing over and over and over again. That's the one thing I love is if, no matter how many haters are out there, the man has touched pop culture in a way that few, except for maybe George Lucas, has really been able to do in our in our history of the late twentieth century to now. Yeah, and. Unlike you, when I do hear it, I don't under, I don't mind it. I actually, it makes me think of whatever scene they're in. It, it takes me from what I'm seeing. I think about Oren 
walking up. Yeah. That's what I think. Well, about. It's like the shots that he's doing of all of them, you know, and they're kind of walking and they're all, you know, like you can tell it's just a cocky yeah. fucking group, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah. It's... Well, that, you know, that cockiness gets put in check about 20 minutes well, later. The, but, the way you know, that they, hey. they track <laughs> through it and everything and then it slowly segues into the five, six, seven, eights is so cool. Like, yes. you know, it's just, yes. he goes from one right into the other and uh, it's a cool, very, very cool song in the movie. I wish they'd stop licensing it out for commercials. Hey, <laughs> if you're Mr. Tomoyasu Hote, you're licensing the fuck out of this. Yeah. I mean, when he put made this song, I mean, it was a it was it was just Throw, completely obscure except for maybe Japan. And then all of a sudden, Tarantino hears it, he puts it in this film, and it is the most. I would say it's still the most recognizable song. Although this soundtrack has a ton of recognizable, but everyone's heard this, even if they don't know the reference. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it was in Kung Fu Panda, so little kids hear this, and like sometimes it's funny, my kids will hear songs that I knew as a young child, and then they'll be like, oh, you know, I heard that from this movie that they watched, you know, that was used as a needle drop, and I'm like, what? Yeah. Was that when I was a kid? That's I started, I started playing Tom Waits, and my two kids knew it from um, the beginning of the animated film Robots. Like, they knew right See, who Tom they, Waits yeah. was, and I was like, oh, really? Yeah. Like, Okay, <laughs> I'll have to see this fucking movie now. <laughs> like uh, my kids didn't know "Hungry Like a Wolf" from Duran Duran, except they saw a uh, big, big fat liar. When uh, Paul Giamatti comes out to the pool, he's like hungry, <laughs> and that's when it kicks in. I mean, I knew that from the eighties. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, it's it's just fun. That's I mean. So whenever I hear this song, I just know that eventually someone will come back and know that it was Tarantino who. Fucking brought it back to yeah, life. Yeah, that's the so. one he's like very, very proud of. I saw an interview with. Yes, him. he is very They're proud like, of. What, it. What's the one that you're most proud of that you've brought back? And he he said this one. And um, I saw a live video of it too. I don't know if you've ever seen this guy play it live, but there's a bunch no. of it on YouTube, and like it, it's quite the performance. Like if he came, I'd go. But it's just like like I said, every time I see it, I love it when I'm listening to it in the Tarantino context. Mm-hmm. It's. He used it so well that I don't think that they can do a tampon commercial where it's going to work. You know what I'm saying? True. <laughs> so, but, yeah. but tell me, if you're driving in your car or you're doing something, you hear this, you just don't want to be like grabbing a sword and just like, let's get this fucking going. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, you, you, like, you, like, no one knows. You have, you're like slow-mo walking thinking you're cool. <laughs> so, yeah, I love this fucking track. But there are other cool tracks. And maybe my second favorite track or what I would consider the most underrated track, as you'll have to come up with them, is track number nine, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, by Santa Esmeralda, featuring Leroy Gomez. This song was originally written by Benny Benjamin, Horace Ott, and Saul Marcus, and recorded by Nina Simone in 1964. This song has been covered numerous times, but only two of them have ended up being transatlantic hits, the 1965 cover by The Animals, and the 1977 cover by disco group Santa Esmeralda. Santa Esmeralda's version reached number one, on the Billboard Club Play Singles chart. This song plays at the beginning of The Bride and Oren's sword fight to the death. Now, in the theater, you've just gone through this unbelievable battle of 88. You're finally making it. They open the door. Awesome review. If you listen to yeah. the Under the Influence episode for this month, we talked about Lady Snowblood. The whole part of this is completely influenced by the beginning of Lady Snowblood. She walks out. There they are. They start talking a little trash. Whose sword is that? Blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, they're going to get it on. And Oren slides out of her fucking clogs, I like to call them. Yeah. And as soon as the last foot is out, she takes her first step. This kicks in. And I remember the first time I saw it in the theater, like we've said, this should not work. Nothing about this song should work. It's in the context of the Part song. Flamengo, yep. 
part uh, Hispanic music, part uh, 70s freaking disco. Like, none of this should work for a fight in Japan. None of this should work for a sword fight in Japan. And yet when it kicks in, there is a joy and an excitement about this fight that I haven't felt since, like, I watched a Rocky film. You know, like, because Rocky always has this kick in music. Oh, like, oh, here we go. And as soon as that happened, it was like just instant joy. None of the other fights in the film are as exciting or joyful. And even though this is just like, I mean, this is as much of a gunslinger fight as you're going to get as they, what, they cross swords three times. They each hit each other once. And then the last time is a fatal blow. Like, it's really very much like that. And if you get to listen to it when you're working or doing something, this song on the, the album is like seven plus minutes. It's a very long song. Yep. Your feelings on Don't Let Me be misunderstood so i like the animals version a hell of a lot more than this <laughs> um there's been a lot of covers of this one over the years and you're saying it's like seven minutes on the soundtrack it's 16 yeah. minutes originally like the seven inch single you had to flip it over i have that one what part of not being misunderstood did you not understand from this man exactly um yeah it should not fit it, it shouldn't Mm-mm. it's got flamenco Mm-mm. guitar latin rhythms uh-huh. uh, it's almost a spaghetti western feeling at one yes. point in it yeah and then it's got a four on the floor you know, disco drum pattern that it should. Yeah, work you want to like Travolta's going to come out just dancing. He's just yeah. doing the fucking the pistols. The thing I like about it is it keeps layering on all this, all these different styles. It's like the Isaac Hayes one earlier, where it just just starts off, you know, with like one thing, and then just keeps layering in instruments, and then it's like, holy shit, what you know, what's going to happen here now? The first time you see it, and um, yeah, I, I really like that one. It's a cool song of the stuff I didn't know going into it because it's not something that you'd ever. Like, I don't see, you know, like one of your buddies saying, hey, Scott, go listen to this track. Like, you know, and you're like, hey, I'll turn the Mm -hmm. Pearl Jam off for five minutes and I'll go check it out. (laughs) You know, like, I'm not going to do that. So, but because it was on here, you listen, it was like, oh, shit. And it just keeps going on and on and on. Then he shuts it off for the five minutes of the sword fight and such a cool sword fight. And like you said, there's, you know, there's three hits. But Mm -hmm. the last time I was watching it, in, for t- for this podcast in context, I guess I never noticed the little nuances between Oren and the bride where you can really see the respect between the two of them mm-hmm. um, for each other after they've both hit each other. Because Oren's kind of giving her shit at first a little bit, you know, and then she hits the bride, then the bride hits her. And then you can there's this scene where there's one shot where you can kind of see it because I'm going through and watching these now like you've been watching them, you know, really mm-hmm looking for little stuff in there that's going to help me identify and understand the movie further. And that's one of the things I picked out of it this time that's in my notes that I'd never noticed it. And also, these tracks are out of order for the film, for anybody that is listening. I don't think... Yes, they are. Yes, they are. They're very out of order. He didn't preface that. I think they... Like Reservoir Dogs is all right in a row. True Romance yep. is in a row. Um, from Dust Till Dawn. Pulp Fiction is pretty close too. Yeah, yeah. Pulp Fiction. Yep. Jackie Brown is really, really close. This one is all fucking all over the place. And like, I think the Kill Bill 2 that we're doing next month, like it starts off with the track that's at the end of the movie. <laughs> it's over the end credits and shit. So and, basically what you're saying is that a Tarantino soundtrack is non-linear? Yeah, exactly. Well, as you were saying, um, as we just talked about, and you haven't heard the episode yet, so listeners have heard this, but you have not. We talked about that a little bit is Oren in the lore of writing for it is supposed to be the bride or Beatrix's best friend. That is the feeling everyone has is she's the best friend. And what sells that is and anyone who, you know, you when you're when you have good friends, you have moments. For me, we we can do a lines of dialogue together. You know, there's just moments we have. Even if you end up hating each other, want to kill each other because one of you know, one of you betrayed you and you lost your child. You know, that kind of thing. It happens all the time. <laughs> um, but what sells it 
And it's not just a cool line of dialogue. And this is the thing I love about Tarantino and those people who really know and the haters who just have no clue what the fuck's going on. Because that you don't know what's going on, you sound like an idiot when you say things because you don't really understand the films. But when they say Silly Rabbit, tricks are for kids, and they share that line, they have said that before. They have said that together, either in joking or they've said it as a cool line when they were killing somebody. That moment they have shared together or they both enjoyed trick cereal as kids and they remember the commercial and that was the thing that was always said when the rabbit wanted to get the tricks back. That's not the case, I don't think. If you tie in that moment, because that was the other one that's on my notes. Oh, there's more. So those two sharing that moment is one. The other is what they say to each other when they fight. When Oren says to her, uh, silly Caucasian girl likes to play with samurai swords, whatever, that is an attack that's on a personal level. Yep. That Oren, now that they're not best friends, you, when you're friends with somebody, you put up with their bullshit. Like, and you have bullshit of your own, and your friends put up with you, right? Like, there's certain things that we all do that probably get under our friends' skins, but because we're friends, they let it slide. If there were other people on the street, you'd be like, fuck this guy or fuck this person. We won't let it slide. So there's been some things clearly that Oren has had built up over the years of, one, probably Bill saying that the bride's the best swordsman, the bride's the best this, and after a while, it wears on somebody. And the silly Caucasian girl likes to play with samurai swords is a personal attack. Yep. It's not just something of cool dialogue. That's a personal attack, which is why when they actually fight, there's a real attack on it. And when she apologizes, she's starting to get her respect back. She starts to realize that, you know, maybe I was, or maybe she is a pretty good swordsman. Because, you know, two seconds later, she does cut the top of her head off. <laughs> so there is that. But there's there's a lot of subcontext in that story, which is why we get a lot more of Oren. Oren's the person we get the most of, yep. if you think about it. There's no one else gets a backstory. We don't know about Vernetta. We don't really know about Elle. We don't really know a lot about Bud. And we've basically nothing about Bill. But the one person we get a lot of is Oren. And that's not just because she's a cool character, but because I truly believe that the two people who are the closest together and who really walked the same path and probably disappointed uh, the bride the most that she would turn on her would be Oren. Because if anyone has gone through what the bride just went through, it was Oren, just the reverse. But there, there's, that's just a little little thing to kind of go with what you had said. But there are moments, there's dialogue, and there are things in there not just because they're cool things to say, but they show moments of people and show that there's there's a deeper connection than we need to always do. We don't always need to have a flashback. We don't need to keep going through a run and talk about how we used to be best friends. You know what I mean? Like, we don't need all that stuff. We can just simply get it from... Just their small interactions, even though they're trying to kill one another. Yeah, and there's another line in there, too, where she asks about the sword, and she turns to say, you lie. It's, yeah. it's stuff like, you know, like you, the silly Caucasian girl. It'd be like one of my buddies, yeah. you know, harassing me because I'm bald. You know, you got no yes, hair. Yes, I get that all the time. The same yes, yes, shit. Yes, and, yeah. like, yes. I picked up on it this time where I'd never picked up on it before. And the little, that thing I was talking about, right before they go to lock swords for that last time, there's a look of relief a look of sadness on the bride's face where she mm-hmm. doesn't want to kill her, but she knows she has to, mm-hmm. it's, you know? Yeah. So like I picked up on it this time and like, I probably wouldn't have if it wasn't for like listening to this podcast and all of the, you know, the input that you're getting from everybody on it, where I started really watching these movies yeah. on another level besides just, Oh, they're going to kill each other here. You know, like it's, yeah. there's so yeah. much going on that these, there's these little threads that, you know, Tarantino's pulling at in all different directions that he doesn't get credit. Well, it's violent. Yeah. And he's telling a deep fucking story underneath all yes. of it. And he's not yes. getting any credit for it because you guys are still stuck on the fact that she just killed 88 people inside or 
you know, 44, yes. however fuck many were in there. That jumps us to one of the out-of-order songs, number 10, Woohoo, Woo-hoo by the 5678s. The 5678s are Japanese rock band from Tokyo. This is a cover of the Rocketeen's 1959 Rockabilly song, and is one of three songs that they play to make it into the film. The others being I Walk Like Jane Mansfield, and their cover of the Iket song, I'm Blue. Tarantino discovered the group's music while shopping in a Tokyo Urban clothing store, hours before going to the airport. He ended up paying the store manager double the retail price for their CD. It's maybe the second most, and maybe to some the most familiar, because it made it into a lot of commercials in the mid to late 2000s. This was used by, I think, either Toyota or Nissan or one of them. One AT&T of the Japanese car companies well. took this one and they yes. ran with it. And you know what? I don't hate this song. It's damn good. It's just a catchy pop song and it works. I love all three of the singles from yes. because they, they played three songs. There's only one of them on the soundtrack, but yes. I love all three of them for different reasons. So, And this song, if you don't know, plays during the single take shot of the bride after she has been, <laughs> after Oren thinks she hears something and throws her little dart through the uh, screen and Go-Go goes out. Uh, she lowers up down. Then we have this long take of the bride going to the ladies' room, and then we follow a waitress back out, and then we follow Sophie Fatel back down the stairs and into the room. And this is one of the last fun songs right before we get the full-on attack. Yep. The full-on, brutal, a House of Blue Leaves attack. Why should a Japanese... Surf, almost surf song, surf pop, bubble. Surf rock, why punk should that band. work? Three Japanese work? female surf punk pop. Yeah, it shouldn't work. It shouldn't, it, but it does. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, and like it, I, it's kind of like them playing themselves in the movie too, as like the house band and stuff. It's when I was watching Hateful Eight here a couple weeks ago, and like it just, it's like just leave them there because it, it. I think he says that. He, he adds something to it, and that's what they do there, is they add something to this scene. You know, like, you could walk into this real, I don't know what the fuck is it, a bar or a restaurant in J- Japan, and the 5678s are playing there, and people are just, yes. you know, and it looks like, I was reading about Tarantino choosing this, and I guess he was picking up a Kango hat or some shit in Japan. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. Love the Kango hat, late 90s. He was there for Jackie Brown and, like, stopped to get a piece of clothing, and they were playing the 5678s in the store he was in. And he went up and asked, like, hey, can I buy the CD? And they're like, no, we don't. We're not selling you the CD that we're playing in here. And he's like, don't you know who I am? I'm quitting goddamn Tarantino. Do you know who the fuck I am? Yeah. So <laughs> they called and they talked to the manager. And because, you know, he can't just write it down and go figure it out later because <laughs> he's afraid of the fucking <laughs> computer. <laughs> so, yeah, he uh, ended up paying double for it and went and f- figured out and, you know, and had them come in and play it and stuff live on the set. I think it's a li- it's a live recording, like on the set. They use yeah. the singles, you know, for everything else because they play a song called I Walk Like James Manfield and yeah. I'm Blue is the other one. And they... You know, it's kind of cut in between everything that's going on in the yep. story and everything, and it kind of keeps coming in and going out and everything. And it should not work, but it it works so wonderful on this mm-hmm. scene. And it was one of those standout scenes where, like, I missed them twice. They came to First Avenue in Minnesota when I was living there, and I could have went and oh, seen no them. And I missed them, and they're they're actually playing. If you're listening to this, right? Well, actually, no, it's coming up here in the middle of the month. They're playing in Minnesota. They're playing two shows. You can go watch Kill Bill and they will play it live while it's going on. Why Minnesota? I don't fucking know. Like that's, I was like, when I lived there, nothing happened. I move, everything happens. That's why. That's why. Um, They wait for you curmudgeonly to get off their lawn. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like the last, I I was a musician for like 20 years. Last song I ever played on stage in front of people was the, I walk like James Mansfield with a, Cover cover band one night. So this is the last time I played in front of people was to play a five, six, seven, eight song. So 
I love the song. I love the way that it's used. Um, I love all three of them, the way that they're placed in there. And like, it just kind of keeps yeah. moving into different areas to tell the story of her getting ready to go in there and kick ass. And the scene where she like jumps up to the ceiling and is hot, you know, it's, it's very, very cool. Like, and I love the fact that of the three, this is the one that was going to be the one that people were going to go and buy the record for, you know, and they did. Absolutely. That leads us to track 11. It's a duo. It's a combo song. Crane, White Lightning by the RZA and Charles Bernstein. The RZA doing Crane, Charles Bernstein with the White Lightning. Charles Bernstein is an American composer of film and television scores. The White Lightning portion of this track comes from Bernstein's very first film score, the 1973 Burt Reynolds movie of the same name. The Crane portion of this track was written and composed by the RZA. We hear the song during the bride's fight with the Crazy 8, most notably when she spins one of the bald ones, the only other bald, almost Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle looking guys who has been stabbed through the chest with her sword and she she spins him around like a dreidel while she's trying to catch her breath. Now, as we said before, another song made it to a, another movie, and this White Lightning makes it to Inglorious Bastards when Mr. Major Holstrom shows up unannounced to invite Shoshana to get some strudel in Inglorious Bastards. So it makes a second appearance. Great song. Again, the whole battle, and there's a lot of songs that are not on the soundtrack during the total fight scene. And the fight scene changes with the mood and tone of every song that's played in it. Every single song changes as we go through it. It slows down when she's like on the back for like, oh, God, geez, I'm tired. I don't know if I'm going to make it through them. To all of a sudden, she gets like a burst of energy and she starts doing her 1980s windmill breakdance sword cutting everyone's legs off moment. That's the only song I don't like that's that's in it is the one that's that surf song that's over that. Uh... But yeah, but that doesn't make the soundtrack. So yeah. look at that. You, you lucked out. You lucked out. Yeah. However, it works in the moment. It works in the moment. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of songs that work in the moment of the film that when you listen to them on the soundtrack, sometimes you're like, all right, I can move on past this one. But Crane White Lightning, brief moment in there, has two movies, two of his best films it makes an appearance in. And I remember sitting in the theater for Glorious Bastards and hearing it and going, that song is familiar. Yeah. Why do I feel like I've there's heard another, this song There's before. another track from that soundtrack that is in, in, in Glorious Bastards. Um, it's the twangy part right um, during the Bear Jew beating that segues out of that into something else. I think it's the Hitler stuff, the where there's that real twangy guitar. It's the intro. Yeah, from nine, the, nine, nine. Yeah, it's the intro <laughs> from White Lightning, which I just saw. It's a Burt Reynolds movie about him yep. bootlegging with Ned Beatty. And the, the intro to the movie is like Ned Beatty taking these two brothers on boats out into the bayou and shoots them and throws them into the water. And it, that, that song works so well. And Tarantino loves the film. And the White Lightning had never been released on CD or vinyl or anything. Uh, Gator, the sequel to the movie, had. But um, White Lightning never did. And he reached out to Bernstein. And Bernstein sent him the tracks to listen to because he's Quentin Tarantino. And he ended up using them in the films. Um, they've had CD releases and stuff now where the whole scores are really, really good. It's one I would love to do. But Bernstein, like, he, he's never done. He's known for Nightmare on Elm Street. That's it. He did the original score for the first Nightmare on Elm Street with Robert England and didn't like ever pinnacle above that in the stuff that I've seen. So, but White Lightning is really, really good. I don't like the RZA stuff over it, but I'm not a rap guy. So I, I'm not like, I'm still waiting for House of Pain to make their comeback, you know? <laughs> well, the one thing about the RZA though is they are huge Kung Fu. The, the Wu Tang yeah. Clan itself is named after their huge, huge fans of Kung Fu films. And the RZA was the perfect choice, in my opinion, if you're going to pick somebody who knows what Tarantino is going for. From what I've heard, the two of them were able to sit for hours and 
go back and forth about kung fu movies that they that they had seen and they loved. So yep. I mean, Tarantino went ahead and did was it the uh, God, what was that? What's that movie? Rizzo does there's that kung fu movie, the Iron uh, Fist or something. Iron Fist. I was say, or, like, yeah, that's, and if, Tarantino was the producer of that if, and helped him get it made. If anything awesome came out of this, it was the fact that he lit a fire into the Rizzo to go and do movies on his own, which you know because he directed. I think he wrote yeah. and directed both of those. Both of them. Yeah. So, yeah, I've only seen them once. Like, I like them, but they're not. Well, yeah, but, but again, they're in the same vein of the movies he loves. So, you know, can't can't fault them for it. That leads us to a song that those of you who listen to the Under the Influence Kill Bill Volume 1 episode will know very well. And that is The Flower of Carnage by Miko Kaji. Miko Kaji is a Japanese actress and singer, most notable for her role as Yuki in the 1973 Samurai Revenge flick, Lady Snowblood. She sang the title song to that film called Shiro no Hana, which translates into The Flower of Carnage. This is one of two songs of hers that appear in Kill Bill. The other being Urami Bushi. This song plays at the conclusion of the death battle between Oren and the Bride. And for those of you, as I said, who listened to the episode will also know that this is the opening credit song of the film Lady Snowbird and is sung by the lead actress playing the film's titular character, Lady Snowblood, Miko, is that lady. A very poignant moment. And if those of you have had a chance to see Lady Snowblood, the minute you watch the opening, you realize that it's the, he just used it for the closing of Kill Bill. You're like, oh, all right, that's where the, he got the snow at night. Okay, I get that. Okay, we now know who Oren is kind of modeled after. And oh, they even used the music. So it's a very poignant use of the song. And it's a beautiful song. Yep. It's just, it's just a beautiful song. And for those of you who actually watch it, the Lady Snowblood, when you have the, the you know, obviously the subtitles on, it's beautiful. And if you watch it, it makes more sense to what the song, why they're using the song in Kill Bill, because you can actually read the lyrics to the entire song as she sings it. So I highly suggest, if anything, you should watch Lady Snowblood. But if you don't, at least watch the first five to ten minutes, and then you'll get a whole lot more appreciation for what Tarantino was able to take as an influence and reference and turn it into the very end fight for Kill Bill Volume 1. Your feelings on The Flower of Carnage. I really, really like this song. It was one of the ones that I was glad that was included. The song, too, like, I went and I Googled the translation and stuff like that. It's, it's about, like, the darkness that you feel when you're on the trail of revenge, just like mm-hmm. Lady Snowblood. I think we, we were talking, like, that scene, when the doors open, that beautiful set, which I still think is mm-hmm. one of the most beautiful sets ever made for film yes. and it's all practical and yes. it's there and it's got that deer scare that's going up and down and everything mm-hmm. and when this song kicks in at the end and you've got that pan flute and everything that comes in um it's it's so beautiful and so wonderful like over those scenes and it just is a complete adrenaline release after what you mm-hmm. just watched for what is it 27 minutes or something on screen of just yeah, fights something and it's such a nice like you know slide down you know, that you're finally out of yes. that. And then, you know, well, then she goes and she cuts arms and stuff off people, you know, <laughs> trunks, you get your trunk shot. <laughs> That's what but, you do. That's what you do. Yeah, I like, I love this song. Um, It's one I've been hunting for for a while. <laughs> for anyone that doesn't know, I collect the seven inch records from all of the Tarantino, any of them that are available. Uh, I, I've been going and looking for and This one is very, very hard to find. So anybody has one and wants to reach out to me, it'll be in the show notes. <laughs> it will be. <laughs> Charge them triple. No, yeah, no. Well, they're all coming from <laughs> Japan, so like the ones that yeah. are available, like the shipping is more than the record. Maybe you should fly over. Maybe the, maybe the price of a plane ticket's cheaper no. than you having it shipped. That brings us to the final official music, as in an actual needle drop. And we'll get into the other things that are left on the soundtrack in a second. But it brings us to the Lonely Shepherd by James Last and Jorge Zamfir. 
This song is an instrumental piece of music composed by James Last and first released with the Romanian pan flutist Jorge Zamfir. The song reached number 22 on the German music charts and helped Zamfir to become an international sensation. The song has appeared in the 1979 German miniseries Golden Soap, the Venezuelan series Ciao Cristina, and had a successful rap version by Lamar in 1999. This song is heard a few times in our film. Our first taste of it is when Mr. Hattori Hanzo presents the bride with the greatest sword ever made by a man that will cut God. We also hear it again when the bride is sitting on the plane and she's making out her kill list, her death list. However, just a little fun fact, when she does it on the plane, it's in red. And when we see it in the beginning of the movie, it's in black. Just saying there's a little continuity error. Just saying. She didn't make two because it was covered in blood. She had it in her pocket during one of the fights. And the final time we hear it is in the closing credits. Now, the reason that this song blows my mind, and if I'm able to find it, you will hear a clip of it at some point as I'm talking about this. But Jorge Zamfir. Now, back in the late 80s, I think it was definitely in the 80s, late 80s. And 90s. Maybe early 90s. You know where I'm going with this because you're a child of this decade. Time Life used to put out all kinds of people's music. And half the time, it was people you'd never fucking heard of. I don't know where they got these music, but you would hear songs or from artists that you're like, what? But they would sell Zamfir, Master of the Pan Flute. And if I can find one of those commercials, you'll be listening to it now. You've heard his hauntingly beautiful music in movies, on radio and TV. He's sold over 20 million records around the world. His name is Zom Fear. Master of the pan flute, that magical instrument with the unforgettable sound. Now in his magnificent all-new collection, Zom Fear plays the world's most beautiful melodies. Loved melodies. Richly orchestrated in Zomfir's all new two record treasury. But remember, this magnificent collection is not sold in stores. Please stay tuned to order. Use your credit card and save COD charges by calling toll free 1 800 421 2000. Or, to save all additional charges, send check or money order for only $12.98 for two albums or two cassettes, or $19.98 for two compact discs to Zomphir, P.O. Box 8449, Atlanta, Georgia. Remember, that's Zomphir, P.O. Box 8449, Atlanta, Georgia. When I heard this song, and I saw that it was by Zamfir, I had never really heard much of his stuff besides the stuff on the thing. And, you know, you watch it because you, whatever you're doing, you're watching the show. Like this, you know, there's not a lot of channels. So if this is on, you're watching a movie, you're staying with it, you're not channel surfing, you're not coming back to it, you're going to just stick, stick it through. But to have Zamfir 
Make it into Tarantino blew my mind yeah. in 2003 when I when I found out there was Zamfir. I remember calling me because it was before texting, calling my brother, going, "You're not gonna fucking believe who's in the latest Tarantino film." Fucking Zamfir, master of the fucking pan flute. I mean, we thought he was a fucking joke forever, yep. and then fucking one day Tarantino's out having fucking dinner somewhere in L.A. and this cocksucker is playing at the in the you know in the speakers of the restaurant he's at. So some guy there bought this fucking up all night on USA today fucking commercial music and they're playing it in their restaurant and he hears it he hears this fucking song and sure enough Zamfir master of the fucking pan flute the lonely shepherd is now a part of lore and I'm gonna be honest with you I fucking love the song yep. so my hats off to you Zamfir you master of the pan flute because this fucking <laughs> song is fucking awesome and let's be honest would anybody have thought that a man named Jorge Zamfir is the one playing this fucking song that sounds like, it feels like it's some kind of song that came from the Edo time period of Japan. It's, it sounds Japan, like a you know? theme song for like Kung Fu or something. Like, it like could be. Right? Like, you, you're like, yeah. you're like this has to have been from a Kung Fu movie for him. Nope. It's not. Zamfir, Master the Man Flu, folks. The man is, you know what? I'm going to put a link. Maybe they're still selling this music. It'll be in the show notes if I can find it. A link to Zamfir's greatest hits album that's out there maybe from the time life collection you can get it on maybe maybe a track and tape probably oh. i remember the commercials too that you're talking about and they'd play right they, they had the scrolling song titles and yes this great hit and you're like fuck, yes what hit like i never heard it <laughs> yes. what the fuck and then like they'd get done and we now return to kill bill previously yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah this the, of all the songs we keep saying this should not work this song no. should not be on this record. It shouldn't be on the CD. It shouldn't be in the film. It, it steals it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, holy shit! This what is this? Because it sounds like it could be from a spaghetti western. It could be from you know the the horns yeah. when the horns kick in. It could be a spaghetti western song with the acoustic guitar and everything. And then you've got this pan flute over it. And Zamfir's a bad motherfucker. Like on yeah. the pan flute. Oh, I mean, he, he, well, you add him, and then you add Hanzo. Yeah, both uh, talking over. It sounds it. like lyrics. It sounds like it's some kind of motivational. Yeah, it's like a Japanese motivational tape that you're listening to. You don't know what they're saying, and you're just mesmerized by it. That line, the line he says, it's in my notes too. Like I'm glad you brought that up. The the Sunny Chiba's delivery of it when he says God will be cut, and he does that breath. <gasps> he does that. It sounds yeah. like lyrics, like he's singing over it almost. Mm-hmm. It's so I don't know poetic it, it adds to that scene so much mm-hmm. and then like it keeps coming back the song keeps showing up because it's the theme for the the whole movie it is it's the theme for the whole film because it keeps coming back like it comes back at the end and it, you know like i i'd heard you already discussed obviously kill bill one is more of an eastern film and kill bill two is more of a western film and this song if if in the whole bloody affair would be the one to segue from one to two and the song yes. fits those two, where it yes. starts off with the Eastern and goes right into Western. Like, you could not find a more perfect song to put between these two, like a commercial. And then, you know, like, what did they call them back in the day when you'd go see a movie and, like, the they had pauses in the middle of the shit. So you go get up and go po- get popcorn. Intermission. Like, intermission, yeah. I'm getting old. I can't remember this shit. That's all right. And it's okay. Yeah. So it'd be a perfect intermission in there for yeah. it. You know, if you just play this song, it's such a good song. I'm not going out and buying the full fucking album, but yeah, it, it's 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 a great song. And I've I've listened to it more times than I'll admit on here. It's amazing. And you know, it's, it's just funny, those of you who are Gen Xers and know what I'm talking about, when we were little, I'm sure this had to be on. I'm sure it had to be one of the songs. I'm going to go back it's and look. Not, I don't know if I'll find it, but it's not. On the commercial I found it. It's not, not on the commercial? On no. But okay. there, if you look up Zamfir Master of the Pan Flute and go to YouTube, uh, it's not one of the ones on there. But this is the one that 
I, he has a bad motherfucker wallet in his pants pocket when he's playing this. Like, there's no Absolutely. doubt. No, he's he, he, there's a lot of panty droppers. We didn't know. <laughs> we never. Here we are making fun of Zanfir, master <laughs> the pan flute. <laughs> Meanwhile, broads across the fucking globe are just they're just dropping panties. I can't help Him it. And Yanni and Kenny G <laughs> are just getting yeah pussy yes, pussy yes, galore. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot uh, of these the, commercials in the, actually. The pussy triumphant. So there's a track that's on volume two, the Johnny Cash song that's on there. Yeah. That's one that I bought from an infomercial right after he died, the same way the Zamfir stuff. They had a, a the unearthed box set, which was all the stuff he recorded while doing the American recordings that never made it onto those CDs. Right after he died as a cash grab, they put them all into this huge box set, and there's like covers of U2 in there, and there's a whole bunch of cover songs and stuff that he did that was never released. You can only get them in that box set, and this was, that song was part of it. So like, yeah, the, the whole infomercial stuff, you could only get it by mail order. It's like $100 for mail order. It was like an eight-disc or seven-disc set or something that I had. Yeah, the mail order stuff was a huge thing back when we were kids. Yeah. Absolutely. Get the record crazy. for $14 or two yes. CDs for 16 <laughs> plus $4.95 shipping and handling. Wait. But 16. wait, there's more. Wait, yeah. If you borrow <laughs> now wait, in the next there's 15 more, minutes, you're going to get an extra disc. Wait, 7 to 18 years for shipping. Yes. Yeah, it's exactly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, that takes us to the other tracks on this soundtrack. We have two excerpts, and they are... Ironside by Quincy Jones, which is played as the bride's music to know that she's about to fuck a motherfucker up. And Super 16 by New. Now, my friend, Mr. Wheeler, has been waiting, chomping at the bit to talk about the stuff he learned about Ironside. So I will allow him to jump in. I don't know if I have a lot. I just, I, I <laughs> this last time that I watched it. It too was on Zamfir as the band. <laughs> you know, so, like, after watching it this time and really, really paying attention to when this song goes off, because you mentioned it, I think, in your previous podcast about volume one, that she only hears this song and it's right out of a spaghetti western where mm-hmm. they'll see someone, they'll zoom in on the eyes, she gets pissed, you see a little bit of a flashback, and then it's on. And she only sees it during the females. She doesn't see it when she sees Bud. She doesn't see it when she opens the door and see, sees Bill, which obviously her daughter's there. But my theory is that I think she expected the betrayal from the men. But I don't think she expected it from the females here because of how tight she is. Your mm-hmm. theory that I now agree with with Oren, maybe Elle a little bit, but I think Vernita, I don't think as much either. So, however, for Bud though, she she doesn't get a chance to get it because he hits her chest full of rock salt <laughs> as soon as the door opens. She didn't get a chance to have her Ironside moment. He gentled her down, as he says, by filling her breasts full of rock salt as she went flying into the Listening to Texas night. Yes. Yeah. And all this, uh, the Ironside stuff by Quincy Jones, like this is such a cool, it's a cool sound. I mean, I mean, I had it as a phone ringer for somebody I didn't like for years that would, you know, like, (laughs) I'd see it come up and I'm like, shit. Yeah. Telemarketers use that as the, your ringtone for people you don't know. Yeah. And it was like one of the first electronic pieces the music used on television for any tv stuff that's some of the facts i pulled up about it there i mean this is it's only like seven or eight seconds out here on the cd so yeah we've got two scored pieces on here we've got the yakuza oren one and banister fight both done by the rizza himself we have three sound effects on here which was interesting i forgot about it we get the flip sting the sword swings and axe throws and then i do believe we only have two dialogue moments because most of the movie of some of the cool stuff is in japanese which we do have a little bit in the first one queen of the crime council which 
is by Oren with Sophie Fatel in there. And then You're My Wicked Life, which with Sophie once again and The Bride along with Bill. So those are the only two dialogue moments. Again, I really wish they had the Hanzo speech, but again, it's in Japanese and maybe it's on a Japanese version of the soundtrack I don't know about. It's disappointing. But those are the 22 tracks on the original soundtrack. Now, there are 15 other tracks heard in the film that do not appear on the original soundtrack release. And I know you have some thoughts on that. And you have a few tracks that you wish actually made it to this soundtrack. Would you like to tell those? I wish Jay would have cut down that don't let me be misunderstood and just added these in. Um, The first one is The Wound That Heals by Lily. I think it's Shushu is how you say it. It's the scene with when she first meets Hanzo and they go up into his attic and she's picking a sword. Yeah. That song should be on here. Beautiful. The song had never been released before. Um, it was recently put out on vinyl because it's part of a soundtrack for a movie of the same name, the the Lily Shushu. I think is how I think that's how it's pronounced. I'm sure he's going to pull something in here and you know properly pronounce it and do a little infomercial <laughs> no. to make like a dick. I want to attack you again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no Jim Croyce on this one. <laughs> Yeah, I wish that one was on there. That is one of the most beautiful pieces of music. And um, it was recently put out on vinyl over in Japan only. And literally the vinyl sold out in five minutes and it will now cost you $500 wow. for the record. It's crazy. Like I, I actually was going to reach out and see about getting, you know, releasing it in, in the States, but nobody knows what the movie is. That's my favorite track that's not on it. The other one that's not on, it's never on any of them, but it's in a lot of his movies is the Funky Fanfare slash Soul Thing by Keith Mansfield Orchestra, which you hear on your podcast. It's over the beginning, the that, that. Yes, yes. It's actually a full fucking song that is some jamming shit that a lot of people don't know. Go and listen to it. It's on iTunes, Amazon, all that. If you haven't heard it, you only get like this little five second cue and it was just used in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood again. And Mm -hmm. It is, it's a great like jazz. If you see the movie Whiplash, some of that music they're playing, there's a whole half Whiplash, half Charlie Brown stuff that's going on, you know, that, so Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a very cool song that I wish they would just include it one time, but he uses the little snippet and that's it. So you never know, maybe let's ask our guest some fucking questions. That'll bring us to our final questions. The ones where we make our guests shit their pants and show their true colors as they have to pick their favorite child in front of all their children. So up first, Mr. Wheeler, what is your favorite track on this soundtrack? The Lonely Shepherd by Zamfir. By Zamfir, master yeah, of the If you'd have told me 20 years ago that I'd be looking for a seven-inch single of Zamfir, master, <laughs> Zamfir, master of the pan flute. If you'd have told me that, I'd never believe you. Um, It's the one that Tarantino pulls out that I'd say 95% like had never heard that. And it's the first song I think of now when I think of Kill Bill. Even though, like you were saying, you think of the you know Battle of Honor. Battle of Honor, yeah. yeah. That's not me. This is the first one I think of. It's my favorite. What I do like about it, I just thought about it as you're talking. Is that the end of it? Sanford does like a little whatever a pan flute solo is like. He's like <laughs> little little twills. Yeah, the like he's fucking just totally just getting those panties off. He's just like, hey, ladies. What else can I do my tongue? But he's just fucking just riffing at the uh, end. And I've I watch videos uh, of him playing this live now while I was researching this. Yeah. And like that dude is just and he's like <laughs> jamming on that fucking pan flute and he's the master of the yeah. pan flute for a fucking reason. No one else plays the the pamphlet, but hey, hey, listen. Two other people that play that fucking instrument, and he's better than the other guy. That's (laughs) only he's the master. He killed the other two. That's why he's the master. There was an actual sword (laughs) fight, (laughs) and he killed him. Uh, What is your least favorite track on the soundtrack? Oh, the Ode to Oren Ishii. 
I, I, the RZA. I, I love the sample. I love that song. I love all of it. You throw the rap stuff over, but like I said, I'm not a huge rap fan. So I'm just, I'm not. That kind of ruined it for me. I wish it was just that. And I know that because the RZA did the soundtrack and he, you know, probably, hey, let me rap over some of this stuff. Like, and yeah. I, I, what's funny is I really like the Rick Ross song that's on the Django Unchained. Yeah. There's some of the rap that works and some of it doesn't. The Tupac stuff, I like that. Well, the weird thing is, is, th- is he doesn't rap in the movie. So it throws you. It throws you for a loop when you hear it. Because you hear the music and you're like, wait a minute. I don't remember him rapping over this. And then you see the name of the song. You're like, wait a minute. This is even used when Oren's on screen. Like, this is never used. So yep. it's a very interesting dichotomy and conundrum of a song. You see a lot of... um because I buy so many films, uh, you'll see um, a lot of them that are like official soundtrack and songs um, that were, <laughs> you know, influenced by the movie. And it's like, it's a fucking brand. Like I have a Texas Chainsaw Massacre one that's all metal bands influenced by the movie. I'm like, the movie just came out. How did they influence it? And that's a song they recorded 10 years ago. So whatever. But yeah, that might be what's going on here with the RZA, but I doubt it. He just wanted to be on the soundtrack. Well, now he is. He has been for 20 years. So there you go. <laughs> What is the most underrated track on the soundtrack? So I'm not just trying to sell records, but I honestly believe that the all of the Grand Duel stuff, all three from those, and as long as well as the Long Day of Violence song that's spliced in there, um, that music is used to carry like an eight plus minute animated sequence. It makes those scenes so much better. It sits with the afterwards, and there's something about it that's unique that doesn't sound like every other spaghetti western score. It's very operatic and it just, it fits so well in those scenes. And I keep saying it on here, like everyone wants him to do Kill Bill 3. I'd rather have him just write the movie and let these guys animate over it and do, come in and do the music and stuff, just how they did it in there. It would tie those movies together so well. Yeah. But maybe he'll do it. Maybe he won't. Like, it'd be cool if they did. I mean, he's got time now. I mean, he already wrote this movie, so now he can do another show. I mean, he lost the show to the movie, so now he has a chance to do the show. So we'll figure it out. Maybe it'll be a Kill Bill. Yep. There it is. Horseshit. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Horseshit. (laughs) Ah, horseshit. (laughs) And last but not least, where does this soundtrack rank? And I think I already know the answer. For you and your all-time soundtracks of Mr. Tarantino's. Uh, It's my number one. Number two would be Django. Number three is Death Proof. And number four is Pulp Fiction. Wow. All right. My least favorite one is The Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I haven't really clicked with a lot of those songs and stuff yet, but um, it's Fair. very eclectic and I, I don't know, just something I, it, it's the last one I bought. Like I didn't really, it hasn't worked well with me, I guess. <laughs> There's some stuff I really like, some stuff I don't, but the Kill Bill stuff, if you put both of them together, I they're pretty much the perfect soundtrack for a movie. Every little, and Kill, I, I'm including that. So when you ask me again next month, it's going to be Kill Bill as the whole bloody affair not gotcha yeah into, so i'm sure i'll be getting a new set of questions no they'll be in spanish and maybe <laughs> I'm in, in, japanese. in japanese yes exactly <laughs> That will do it for this month's Hymnal Devotional. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Sean Wheeler, owner of Scareflow Records and co-host of the Splatterhouse Podcast for joining me. Now you can find the link to all of Sean's endeavors along with their socials in the show's notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you'd be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other fellow Tarantino fans like yourselves find the show. So join me again in two weeks as the dynamic duo from the Asian Cinema Film Club podcast, Sir Elwood Jones and Sir Stephen Palmer, along with Frank Hannon, co-host of the Bachata Talk podcast. Join me 
for a very special episode as we celebrate the 20th anniversary of Kill Bill Volume 1. So until next time, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.